From MGMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. You know, we live in a, a very data-driven world. There's all kinds of numbers floating around. While the numbers are nice, what do I do with it? As a practice leader, as an administrator, what do I do with these numbers? And the data story really gives you an opportunity to make decisions and action based on that data. That's Erica Betts, project analyst for MGMA Stat, talking about how good financial data can improve your practice. We'll hear more from Erica later, and we'll also hear from Craig Weberg, who will be speaking with presenters from the Financial Conference, and Jackie Johnson, who will be here to tell us about CPT coding changes for 2019. That's all coming up on this financial-based episode of Insights, but first, a word from our sponsors. Sweeping changes in healthcare directly impact the staffing model of today's medical practices. Healthcare executives must use a new set of measures to create care teams that seamlessly work together, innovate, and engage patients in their health. MGMA's newest book, Staffing the Medical Practice, provides the latest strategies to build a winning team. You can preview the book at mgma.com staffing. It's 2019. Is your compliance up to date? It's important that every medical practice be aware of the compliance measures that impact your practice, and MGMA is here to help. Create custom HIPAA, OSHA, and billing compliance manuals to reduce risk exposure in your practice with our newly updated compliance tools. Find out more at mgma.com compliance. For more than a decade, MGMA has hosted the Financial Conference. It's a chance for people to get together and try and solve the financial issues that practices are facing. Senior Editor Craig Weberg is here today to speak about what we can expect from the conference coming up in March. Hey, Craig, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Now, we're going to be talking about MGMA's Financial Conference today. So just to educate people who have never attended or people who have even been there before, tell us a little bit about the overall concept of the show and who in a medical practice or in the healthcare world uh, should attend. So medical practices have some unique challenges. This uh, conference is one that addresses those challenges specific to the medical practices. The Part B folks, the Medicare challenges and collection challenges that are faced by medical practices are unique. They're not like hospitals. They're not like other businesses. So this conference is set up specifically to meet the needs of those medical practice executives and specifically the financial aspects. We have designed the content to be around five major topical areas that we believe cover the needs of the financial management professionals. And those are revenue cycle, first and foremost, that is really important to a lot of, to all practices. The other one is payer contracting and negotiation. So getting your contracted rates to a place where they're profitable is super important. And we've got a lot of great content around that. Another one is business intelligence. And by that, what we're meaning is how to gather and analyze the data that will help us run our practices more efficiently. And that is becoming more and more important as we move into value-based contracts. 
The other couple are physician compensation and productivity. So in order to make our providers work more efficiently and to be able to reward them for that work, we've got a lot of sessions that, that focus around that. And then we've got one that's more of a general topic and that we address operating expenses and topics such as theft and embezzlement in that, in that type of um, content area. So as a synopsis, it's just very focused on medical practices. We recognize that medical practices have unique financial challenges and the content is designed specifically for that, medical practices. And it really does appeal to people that are both physician-owned practices as well as system-owned practices. Okay. Now, I know that you've had quite a few years working on the financial conference. I think you had told me earlier uh, in a conversation that this is maybe your fifth year to handle the content for the show. And you see a lot of familiar faces there. What is it about the show that draws people to come back to it year after year? And what's something compelling that could get a TFC veteran to attend the 2019 show? I think the challenge and the, the reason that people would want to come back is because how much change there's happening in the industry, how much, how many new regulations and, and specifically this year, I think one that's going to be appealing to people that have attended in the past is value-based contracting. That's becoming more and more pervasive in the industry. And I think 30% of contracts now have a value-based element in them. Just, figuring out how to administer that, how to get the right payment rates, how to reimburse your and incentivize your payer or your, your providers in order to work as a kind of a well-oiled machine inside your practice. We're going to really be focusing on that this year. And another really uh, exciting thing for me is that we are bringing back some of our best rated speakers and some that we know that you love, but 80% of the speaker lineup this year is new. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they have to say and how they're addressing these needs for medical practices. Now, you've done something unique this year in preparing for the show and in developing the content. You've started interviewing the speakers. Some of those have already appeared on the MGMA podcast. Some others will be appearing in later podcasts. Who are some of those people that you've spoken to and who are you excited about hearing from this year? So I've interviewed, I believe, over 10 of our speakers and there's going to be some great content out there for everyone to take a look at. And they've really shared some really interesting solutions, you know, that you can, you can pick up and you can listen to in these podcasts. But the three that I'd like to highlight today are, the first one is Jim Malloy and he talks about key performance indicators inside your revenue cycle, how to look at those KPIs and how to improve your revenue cycle based on those KPIs. Um, you're 100% right. Everybody is looking at data. You're seeing it everywhere. Everybody is, is uh, speaking about big data. Um, but let's bring it home a little bit. Let's bring it right to the practice and what can you directly affect. Um, for years and years and years, we've all watched what I call our ins and outs. That's our charges, our payments, our patient volume, days in AR and AR buckets. Those are all important, you still need to watch them, but that's more of like a 30-day type review. Um, you know, you can't fix or tweak what you're not watching. Um, so you need to watch certain KPIs, certain key performance indicators. And when you start to look at a practice, a group, a facility, whatever you're looking at, 
a lot of the problems end up flowing into the AR side. So in order to get a picture of what's going on and what's causing some of the issues, a lot of times I'll start to focus right there. And what I'll do to start off is I'll start off with an open balance type dashboard by payer and account. And I'll slice that by providers and locations, days outstanding. Um, but then I'll, I'll take it a little step further. I'll even create that same type of dashboard by open balances, by payer and account, but by full balance. This means there hasn't been any action at all by a payer um, on those claims. And when you start to trend that out and see, you know, some of these are 60 days, 120 days. What's going on? Why is this one payer having this problem? You start to focus in a little more on what's causing some of these issues. But then there's another way you can tie this together. Um, and this one I, I really enjoy doing. And it's tying to the days to pay by payer. And that's not days in AR. That's some of these payers are paying in seven to 10 days. And some of them are large payers. So when you're looking at your AR and maybe refocusing some of your, your AR reps, you don't want them waiting out there for 20, 30, or 45 days to be working an account. You can drive some of that workload by 12 days, 15 days. Um, so by the time you would normally go after that AR, if you're attacking it earlier, you can actually go after it and get it before you would even get the secondary payer in or even a patient responsibility. So that is just one of the KPIs that I, I look at. Another one that I think is really important that a lot of people overlook is 100% adjusted claims. These, these are services that were performed that are just adjusted off. And so in some cases, they're legitimate. In other cases, in other cases they're not. Um, you know, you really want to know the details in these claims and why they've been adjusted. Is it a timely filing issue? Is it a lost AR opportunity? And then you want to be able to trend this type of KPI by location, by provider, by staff operator to get a really clear picture. Jim had a, a little bit of a different take on the key performance indicators than I've heard before. And I think it's a really interesting way to view those and, and think about improving your revenue cycle. I would agree with that. And who else do you have on tap? So the second one that I've interviewed and I'd like to highlight today is my conversation that I had with Steve Dickens, and he's talking about employment agreements and compensation arrangements. And he talks a lot about how it's, ch it's needing to change to accommodate value-based contracts and what those incentives and what those compensation plans look like for our providers. Traditionally, most compensation plans were based on some form of production, whether it was a straight eat what you kill or whether the physicians had some agreement among themselves about how they divided the fee-for-service uh, reimbursement. But as we see reimbursement shifting from those traditional methods, it's about just more than productivity. Uh, we're also seeing quality coming into play, this idea of value over volume. So we see in many groups that their collections are based not simply on the volume of patients that they're seeing, which was very easy to measure among individual physicians, but it is also being based on different types of capitated plans. Uh, you have ACOs, you have Medicare Advantage, you have different relationships with the commercial payers where they may be getting a per member fee for some type of care management. And so it becomes much more confusing 
who actually is generating revenue when it's not on a per patient per visit model. And so the compensation agreements, the models need to evolve as well to accurately reflect who gets credit for doing what and how do we divide the money that is now coming in and how do we incentivize our physicians to maximize these opportunities for revenue. I liked how Steve really mentioned that the compensation plan and employment contracts really are a tool to help drive physicians' behavior and performance. And I think that's a really important piece that he is going to be able to share. He also is going to be sharing a tool that will help people walk through their current employment agreements, their current physician employment agreements, and think about if they need to be updated. Now you had a third speaker. Who, who else are we going to hear from and what are they going to be talking about? The third speaker is Dr. Sanjay Seth. And we had a nice conversation about what are the really the important data elements that independent practices need in order to build out their value proposition and to show how they're improving care to their payers. This information will be used to help improve reimbursement rates and to work with inside value-based contracts. Let's hear what, let's hear what he has to say. You know, it's surprising uh, and um, a good thing that CMS took the initiative of creating these, the concept of value-based, um, or coining the phrase actually, using triple aim to value-based contracts. And while the insurance companies have had many years to develop risk models and, and uh, programs that facilitate the delivery of the services, but it's to their advantage. And phys- independent physicians or physicians in uh, small practices have not had the opportunity to, uh, to participate in those agreements for uh, lack of knowledge, lack of uh, expertise, and have relied and accepted anything and everything that the insurance companies put in front of them uh, as an ultimatum. I akin that to uh, buying a car. You know, none of us go to a car dealership and buy a car because the car de- the salesperson has said this is the best car and best value for money. We all do our homework, and it's something that as physicians and practices we have not done or don't have the tools to do that homework. So it's becoming far more important to use data and uh, analytics um, as well as the business intelligence to get to a point where the provider or the physician doesn't have to accept whatever the insurance carrier puts in front of them. Um, So, As more and more patients move into these kind of arrangements, uh, it's going to become a significant part of any provider's revenue stream. I liked how Dr. Seth talked about the importance of this data analytics program to medical, to independent practices and how it really is not an option any longer for these guys to be able to gather, report, and present their value to the payers. One of the, those are going to three great draws for the show. And one of the other draws that uh, bring people to events are the keynote speakers. You had told me a little bit offline about the two 
keynote speakers you have, and I wanted you to share that with our audience. Yeah, I'm really excited about both of our general session speakers, and the first one is going to take place on Sunday night on March 3rd, and his name is Richie Atwaru. He's going to be talking about how to use blockchain, what is blockchain, how to use it, what are some real-life applications that practices are using to protect their data and to secure payment in a much easier and faster manner. So we hear a lot about blockchain, but I think Richie's going to do a great job for us to kind of figure out what that actually means and why we should be paying attention to it. The second general session speaker is named Bill Benjamin, and he will be speaking on Tuesday afternoon. He'll be closing the session, and he's talking about emotional intelligence and really why that is such an important skill to learn in order to effectively manage your teams. And I think it's going to be a really good fit for our audience and give some people some very practical advice on how to relate with their staff, uh, think about their own management style and techniques. And I, I'm, I think he's going to do a great job. Okay, Greg, that sounds like a great show and looking forward to seeing you in Vegas and hearing some of these great speakers. Uh, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel. This is my favorite conference that MGMA puts on each year, and I think this is really going to be a great one. So thanks again. To find out more about the Financial Conference or any of MGMA's events, visit mgma.com slash events. In our next segment, Erica Betts, Project Analyst for MGMA STAT, is here to talk about how good financial data can help your practice. Hi, Erica. Thanks for joining us today. Of course. Thanks, Daniel. Happy to do so. Well, we want to talk about MGMA STAT today, and you're an uh, expert in that field. So for listeners who may not know about it, uh, tell us a little bit about MGMA STAT. Of course. A few years ago, we wanted to see if we could provide data in a faster way. Um, through our traditional surveys, the fastest we're able to turn it around is in a couple of months. With MGMA STAT, we ask a question to a panel of about 4,400 healthcare leaders on Tuesday, process, analyze data on Wednesday. One of our consultants will then take the data and write a story which provides best practices and actionable tips on the topic and we turn it all around 48 hours later and send it back to that panel on Thursday morning. That's incredible. What a turnaround. So how do you come up with the questions? Are they based on some data or information that you already have? That's a great question. We have a few different sources for polls. We take a look at what's going on in, um, in the news, what might be uh, a topic that is pertinent at the moment. Sometimes we ask, ask questions related to that. We often have collaborations with external partners in which we identify areas where there may be a gap in data and we can work with um, the ADA, for example, to generate a poll that would come up with meaningful data. And finally, we all often utilize um, opportunities to present data through MGMA speakers, uh, different presentations that are going on. So we'll talk to different folks about where they have a need for data 
And these short polls often give us an opportunity to provide that. For example, our government affairs office um, often util utilizes MGMA stat data for government advocacy. Uh, this is one of the opportunities that we have to sort of use data to push legislation in Washington, um, sort of gives a voice to healthcare leaders. Okay. Well, there, are there particular topics like that when you get into the regulatory stuff or any other types of topics that get a real spike in responses or do you get about the same number of responses each time? We tip, we have a fairly consistent response rate with some of the, what we might call drier topics or the advocacy related topics. We might get a lower response rate. Um, I think frequently because the respondent may not know the answer to the actual question. That said, uh, if we do a softer or more fun poll, if you may, uh, the response rate will increase as everybody feels an opportunity to engage um, and it's a simple answer. Okay. Do you have a personal favorite that y'all have had since you've been uh, putting out these polls? No, oh, that's, that's a great question. Uh, we asked about a year and a half ago how often people have a chance to take a lunch break. And while the primary data, um, some people said daily, some people said weekly, more and more people <laughs> said, oh, maybe once a month. We often follow up the question with an open-ended question asking people to elaborate on their response. And that's when it gets really fun when people really have an opportunity to explain what their original response was or get deeper into the data. Sure, sure. Um, I know that you have a lot of data that's tied to the financial aspects of a medical practice group. Uh, are there any good examples you'd wanna share with the audience? Sure. On the eve of the 2017 financial conference, we asked a question to the panel, how often do you compare reimbursement with contracted payment rates? The answer choices were daily, monthly, quarterly, or other. Uh, not surprisingly, about 20% of folks can make this comparison daily, 15% monthly. Um, what was a little surprising is that almost over a quarter of respondents were unsure. So hmm. following this poll, we sent out a link to a podcast with one of the uh, this year's financial conference speakers, Nate Moore, to provide more information on the topic. In 2018, we performed the same poll and watched that unsure number drop from 26% to 16%. Wow. So the nice thing about it is, A, with MGMA stat, you get an opportunity to have additional information on the data, what you can do with it, what actions can you make for your practice. And then we also get a chance to compare year over year uh, trends or how things are changing. Mm -hmm. And it also, I've read some of the data stories that get built around uh, the data, the polls that you put out, and there's a lot of additional information. What could you uh, share with the audience about those data stories? Sure. I think uh, one of the 
best parts of those data stories is that they're authored by a subject matter expert uh, who can speak particularly to the data and then bring action from it. Um, one of the beautiful things about it is it's free. It's also not exclusive to MGMA members. So anybody can participate. Anybody can get these insights. And I think a lot of times, you know, we live in a, a very data-driven world. There's all kinds of numbers floating around. While the numbers are nice, what do I do with it? As a practice leader, as an administrator, what do I do with these numbers? And the data story really gives you an opportunity to make decisions and action based on that data. Okay. Now you said you had a second stat poll you wanted to talk about? I did. This one, um, we were talking with one of our conference presenters and he identified that he couldn't find recent data on the sharing of financial reporting. And so we said, hey, you know what? Why don't we use MGMA stat? We'll reach out to our folks and see how often they share financial reporting with physicians. As a result of this, we were able to deduce that over 70% of healthcare leaders share financial reporting with physicians monthly, therefore sort of setting the standard for if you're not sure what to do, uh, you can then take that and move forward with your physician on hopefully a monthly basis uh, and share that reporting with them. It was a cool opportunity to fill that gap in data um, and for our speaker to be able to share and say, hey, last week, this is what MGMA stat participants were saying. So not only is it accurate, it's extremely timely. Okay. All right, Erica, anything else about data that could impact the uh, financial conference speakers, topics, anything along those lines that would be of interest to people you wanted to discuss? I would say that if you're interested in checking out more MGMA stat data, you might um, stop by one of Nate Moore's sessions. He's our resident Excel guru, um, and he loves to utilize MGMA stat data within his presentations, and you just might see a couple of fresh new data points in Las Vegas from Nate Moore. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Erica, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course. Thanks so much for the opportunity. If you'd like to sign up for MGMA STAT, text MGMA STAT to 33550. For previous reports, visit mgma.com data. As the new year begins, the new CPT coding changes are on the minds of executives. In this segment, Craig Weberg is back talking with Jackie Johnson, who will be sharing her thoughts on why ICD-10 diagnosis coding should be a priority in their practices as well. Okay, in the previous conversations we've had, you're talking about how diagnostic coding can sometimes be a misunderstood aspect of correct coding, and that they are a key element in, uh, in all the claims that support medical necessity and the documentation correct. of severity of condition. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, the implications of that, of, of not having those correct diagnosis codings? Just go over that for us. Absolutely. Sure. So typically during an audit, and I'm speaking prior, primarily now to the, um, what I would call the Part B side or the physician side. When we do audits, typically we're very concerned about CPT codes because for years, 
That's how payment comes in. It's the RVU. It's the CPT code with more or less, um, if the diagnosis code looks good, it's acceptable. But what we're seeing now, number one, when we got our ICD-10 a few years back and we look at the extreme number of code sets that we have now compared to what we had, we can see that there's more of an emphasis to truly describe each patient encounter very carefully. This rule also applies to any type of facility type of coding. We really wanna describe what is happening with the patient at the time of that encounter or the time of that stay. This ties directly to medical necessity, medical severity. When we think about physicians and where they spend a lot of their time, they have many office visits. And we often think about the levels of service and CPT codes. In my opinion, that level of service or office visit code will easily describe what the provider feels they did that day, how hard they think they were working. But the diagnosis code will always reflect how hard they truly worked if the provider will truly take the time to describe the patient at the time of that encounter and be very specific as to the level of severity and the specificity, meaning describing anatomical structures correctly, describing if there are comorbidities, describing if the patient has any risk factors um, in either their lifestyle or in their any other disease processes, anything that makes that provider have to think harder. That's what these diagnosis codes are doing is showing how many things did the provider have to think about. And on the facility side, it is describing what all the providers had to consider when they were seeing this patient as an inpatient, all the different um, elements. And this means if that patient has had surgery before, um, again, any comorbidities, any risk factors to this patient. So I think there's a great opportunity to clearly describe severity. And this makes it much easier to match up with the CPT code. And it describes how hard that provider's working. And it also describes that provider's patient population. So when we think about managed care networks, um, even the Medicare managed care networks, and we're thinking about a population that this provider has to um, take care of, it's saying on a daily basis, I work pretty hard. I see patients with multiple comorbidities, and the conditions that I'm treating are complicated. And I've been able to describe that with these codes. And yes, you'll find it in my documentation, but here's a really clear way to quickly describe what I'm having to deal with on a daily basis. So I just think we've never looked at it from that perspective. And there is a great opportunity here to describe a lot of things with some codes. I really like the way that you um, framed that by saying, how much, do, how much more does it make the physicians and the providers think? What are the, all the mm -hmm. elements that need to come in there? I think that that really, you know, helps it me does. clarify what, uh, the specificity of the level of coding mm -hmm. that you need to accurately Because uh, that's document. truly what they're doing. <laughs> yep. we, this is their way to describe what I had to think about. So do you, have you seen in practices and with providers um, – people struggling with this, you know, I know ICD-10 now is um, 
a couple of years old. Have you seen mm -hmm. people struggle or conversely, you know, figure out a, gr a good way to uh, accurately uh, implement a, an ICD-10 diagnostic coding program? Are there some yes. practices? I think, yes, I think there's a big struggle. Um, I can tell you what I've seen and what I've heard, and they are, they go together. They co-line very nicely. And typically when I'm providing education, it's coming from the providers. So we'll have to remind ourselves in most physician offices, there is an electronic health record and electronic medical record. And the provider is completing the documentation. And at that time, they're typically they're responsible for selecting the diagnosis code. So I can easily stand in front of them and educate just very similar to what I just said about how important it is to do this and show how hard you're working. However, the electronic record makes it very cumbersome to select a diagnosis code. So at that point when they're remembering everything I've said and they can truly understand it's important, suddenly the world stops for them and they are going through this electronic record and trying to find, trying to find these multitude of conditions I've asked them to be very specific about and all the comorbidities. So the struggle is actually doing it, operationally fulfilling this task. They may have put it in the medical record and the documentation is great. However, when the claim goes through, that's where we want to see it. And they're having a hard time connecting the dots there. Now, in some practices, they might have um, a scribe or someone working with them to accomplish this task. And in those instances, what I have seen and what I have heard is that this person will sometimes pull in a problem list, um, just all, that, all the diagnoses this patient's ever been seen for in, their, in the past with this provider. The issue I'm seeing with this and the providers are echoing what I'm seeing is it often reflects diagnosis that were not even addressed during that encounter. So now that's a risk on your audit. It's a risk on a claim. Your claim is identifying diagnosis that were never addressed so your documentation won't back it up. There, I have yet to find a practice, and I am being honest in that answer, I have yet to find a practice that has found an easy way an efficient way to accurately pull diagnosis codes from their system that reflect everything that was addressed during that day because we are trying to be efficient, move through the practice, and even if they have a scribe or someone who is allowed to help them pull this information, it's still not being done correctly. And this is something I'm seeing continuously on audits throughout all specialties, different states across the board. So there is a struggle. And I don't think it's that they don't want to do it. They understand how this can be helpful, but it is a struggle to get it done correctly. Yeah, it's, as you mentioned, it's both super complex as well as the EHRs are not properly designed right. in order for them to find those diagnostic codes. Exactly. I think another part, I'm just going to tag on to that. Absolutely. Another struggle is that a lot, you know, as a, you know, I'm a coder by trade. I'll use that phrase. So when I see this ICD-10 book, I embrace it. 
a provider is not going to embrace it the same way. And there are many rules. And I think there's an opportunity to find an easier way to let providers know the opportunity of the, the, the number of codes that are in here, the things that we can describe. I think, and I'm going to digress on this because it's such a big topic right now, I think we need to get over, and I say we as an industry, the stigma attached to um, patients who, uh, opioids and patients who have become addicted because this is such an important topic now. I think we need to be able to address that better and providers need to not be um, concerned if the diagnosis code suggests um, things that might be bothersome. There are ways to describe patients who are not being compliant with their medications and I've heard that some providers are uncomfortable using those types of codes. Um, but I think we really have to describe what that provider's up against on a daily basis. And there are ways to do this, but there's a lot of stigma attached to a lot of these codes. Have you seen any movement from the uh, EHR vendors to help with this process? Have you seen kind of the demand for the users of different health EHR yeah. systems to try to make their systems easier when it's regard with with this regard right what i am hearing from the practices is that they are urging and asking i have not had an opportunity i have at some conferences had a chance to talk to some vendors about what they're doing and i can see that i guess i should say what i'm hearing is that they see the need and i do believe that we will see progress Okay, and thank you, Jackie, for sharing these insights. And before we close, I'd like to remind you that Jackie will be sharing insights like these during her session on March 5th at the MGMA 2019 Financial Conference in Las Vegas. Her session is titled Maximizing Revenue Through Correct Diagnosis Coding. Thanks again, Jackie. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, that concludes our financial episode. Thanks again to our guests, Steve Dickens, Sanjay Seth, Jim Malloy, Erica Betts, and Jackie Johnson. If you like the show, please rate and review it on wherever you get your podcast. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. If you have any questions, concerns, or ideas, please shoot us an email at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.